Thanks, Ruth, and good morning, church. Let's start today as we launch into this bold new adventure over the next six weeks. Let's start with some words of Jesus. Always a good place to start, right? Jesus described the singular thrust of his ministry this way. He said in John 10, verse 10, I have come so that you might have life and have it what? Abundantly. And those words still kind of tantalize the human race. I have come to have, to, to offer you life and not just any kind of life, but an abundant life. What does that mean? I mean, what are the contours of that? What's the character of an abundant life? What does it mean to live a good life? A life for which we were designed, a life to which we have been called. To what end has God placed us here? The Bible uses a particular word to describe that kind of life. It's a word that's kind of old-fashioned sounding. It's a word that it doesn't get bandied around the church much anymore, at least not at churches like this one. But it's a word that is absolutely vital to understanding what Jesus had in mind when he invites us to an abundant life. And the word is, I'm not going to tell you yet. We're going to play a game. Uh, we're going to play a game called Get the Picture. You've played this before. I'm going to show you a series of photos on the screen. You're going to identify what they are, and then we're going to identify the common thread that weaves its way through them. So here's the first one. What is that? A what? A St. Bernard. How could you tell? The whiskey barrel. (laughs) How about this next one? Let me give you a clue. This is actually, as it turns out, is more of a U.S. franchise. Erase erase the sign. So it's not Tim Hortons, though I know we're in the States. Let me, next slide will give you a bit of a clue. Okay, now go back. Cinnamon, you're on the right track. What's it called? St. Cinnamon. There we go. Okay, and the next one. Let's see, who is a fashionista in this place? Donna, do you know what this is? Yves Saint Laurent. I asked a guy in the first service, he said, it's a purse. I said, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, Uh, a couple more. How about this? Now, this is going to stretch your memory back a little bit. That's Roger Moore, by the way. If you grew up in the 60s, you saw this on TV. What is it, Barry? The Saint. One more. That is a statue of? Uh, Who said St. Christopher. How did you know that? That's like graduate level saint knowledge. (laughs) Well done. Yes, not just a statue of any old saint. It's Saint Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. You see those dangling from rearview mirrors and cars, coins in the wallets of panicked flyers on airplanes. Uh, It turns out a little bit of saint trivia. Maybe I'll give you some saint trivia every week. Saint Christopher is no longer a saint. He was desainted, if there is such a thing. As it turns out, St. Christopher wasn't a real person. It's based on more of a fictional character. And there might have been a real person underneath it, but they're not sure. So the no longer St. Christopher, who probably has more medallions and statues than most saints in the world, has been desainted. Of course, the common thread weaving its way through all the images is saints. 
So let's, uh, let's toss out a definition. A saint. A saint is a person acknowledged as holy and virtuous and typically is regarded as somebody who is in heaven after they die, which is why sometimes people will pray to a saint. Saint, if you want to know the history of the word, is actually a French word. We have some French speakers with us this morning. You know that in French, the word saint means holy. In the Catholic Church, though, a saint has a more specific meaning. And I mention it because for most of us in the modern world, our understanding of what a saint is, of what sainthood is all about, is kind of colored by our experience of of Catholicism. And within the Catholic Church, a saint is somebody who has like heroic virtue. I mean, these are the great heroes of the faith. And that definition within Catholicism means that they exemplify in their life the four cardinal virtues. What are those? Prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. Alongside that, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And all of those qualities are displayed in a consistent and exceptional way in the life of a saint. Now within Catholicism, I read this week, there's more than 10,000 of them, saints. There's even a field of study dedicated to the research of saints. It's called, here you go, hagiography. Hagiography. Sounds kind of wicked, doesn't it? Hagiography. But but you know the word. Uh, Graphie, graphos, means to write. Like you have graphite in a pencil. So this is the study of the writings of the hagia, or the hagios, which is simply a word, and it's an Old Testament word, which means the holy people. This is the study of holy people. In fact, that word holy is used throughout the Bible, from beginning to end. Angie was right. She mentioned at the beginning of the service, from beginning to end. But if you are reading a version of the Bible, a modern translation that has been translated probably in the past 15 or 20 years, it doesn't appear in your Bible at all. Why is that? It's because when when translators are doing the leap from one language into another, they want to provide something that that, provide, that offers the meaning as clearly as possible without any possibility of misunderstanding. And they were so concerned that people were going to read that word saint and misunderstand. No, that's just the people that are in statues in museums or on stained glass in cathedrals. They won't understand what it really was meant to be. So now whenever you see in your Bible the words people of God, the people of God, understand that underneath it is the word saint. The holy ones. That word, holy one, or or, or the two parallel words that we're going to also look at uh, throughout the course of the series, the words sanctify or sanctification. These are biblical words, and they they offer us concepts that are absolutely essential uh, to understanding and living out the Christian life. Uh, By the way, saint, holy one, sanctify, Latin. If, if, how many of you had to do Latin? Was Latin still a thing in high school for anyone? Okay, you know what you are? Old. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding, Art. <laughs> um, it's Latin. It's the word Latin, sanctos, means holy. Same thing. Or the word sanctify, uh, the, word, and the noun sanctification, is what happens when you are made holy. 
And they were never meant to be words that were reserved for this uh, exotic pantheon of historical heroes from the past. These are words that describe and circumscribe the life of those who follow Jesus, again, with that tantalizing invitation, come experience life, not just any life, the abundant life. And here's what the invitation looked like. This is 1 Peter 1. If you have your Bibles or devices, 1 Peter 1, verse 16. Doesn't get any more clear than this. Be holy. Be holy, why? Because I, your God, I am holy. Of all the attributes and characteristics of God, there's only one in the Bible that's ever elevated to the third degree. You know, the Bible, we've said this before, doesn't drop out of heaven, fully bound in leather with gold gilded pages, maps at the back, table of contents in the front. No, the, the, Bible, um, the Bible is a product of, of the ancient world, and it's beautiful. But in the ancient world, they didn't have modern topography. They didn't have bold print and underline and, and, and fonts that could be extra large when you, wanna, when you want to emphasize a point. If they wanted to emphasize something, you know how you do it? Repetition. Repetition. It's interesting, you know, the, Bob, the Bible doesn't speak of God as powerful, 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 though that we know he is, or eternal, 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 and he's that as well. There's only one attribute of God ever listed, lifted to the third degree. You know what it is? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thinking again about, about church theology, Catholic theology, because it, it colors our understanding of this language of sainthood. Within Catholicism, I, I read this week that to be elevated to sainthood, the life of the person being considered must be accompanied by at least two miracles, verifiable, provable miracles. They're not wrong, you know, they're not wrong. But where I think maybe they have erred a little bit is by looking for those miracles and things like statues that bleed or images of a proposed saint that appear in a potato or something like that. Uh, there are two miracles that accompany every life that is aligned to Jesus. They are the miracle of salvation and the miracle of sanctification. There's that new word. Salvation is the miracle that restores us to God. Sanctification is the miracle that shapes us into the image of God. And they go hand in hand. Both are essential to God's plan. And for the next six weeks... We're going to talk more about the second one than the first one. doesn't mean we don't believe in salvation. What it does mean, though, is sometimes I think the church likes to talk only about salvation, like we're all about giving birth, and then we just let the babies figure it out on their own. We're going to unpack all of the rich biblical language around things like holiness and sanctification, around the call to be saints. What does that mean? More importantly, what does it look like? And we are going to fall back on a a phrase that you are going to hear again and again so often that either you'll be sick of it, or I hope, and this is the case, that it'll become so endearing that you'll start signing off your emails with this. Here's the phrase, in Christ. As God's people, we are in Christ. On Christoi, in Christ. 
Christ. That is the inevitable dynamic of the person who is aligned with Jesus. That they are participating fully in life with Christ. The idea of trying to accomplish anything that we'll talk about over the six weeks without Christ is ludicrous. It will just exhaust you and demoralize and frustrate you, and it will look like hypocrisy to the world. But in Christ, the goal is nothing less than, and get this, flip in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 48. Here is the goal. Nothing like setting the bar where it belongs, good and high. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're going to come back to that. I don't want you to be intimidated by it until we unpack it. Those of you who are in small groups, and I hope that will be all of you, and we'll say a word about that, you're going to continue this conversation midweek in between sermons. And you're going to follow as one of your guides some teaching from a book entitled Called to be Saints. The author is, is Gordon Smith. Do you need to buy this book, read this book? No. No, we've done the unpacking for you. Sheldon is going to put out every week study guide and notes. There are sermon notes. But I, I want you to know that we'll be reading this. But we'll be reading it secondarily. The primary thing we're going to read is the Bible. Because right? it's all there. It really is all there. And all Smith is doing is helping us ferret out from the Bible what are the themes. And he talks about the four distinctive marks of a holy life. And they're a mouthful. Because he's a theologian, and theology, you know, theologians, we like our words. So here are the four dimensions or distinctive markers of a holy life. Get a load of the first one. Sapiential holiness. You've got to see that word on the screen. Sapiential holy mackerel, right? Sapiential holiness. Only it's not quite as intimidating as you think it is. You are homo sapiens. You know what that means? You are thinking beings. Sapiential holiness has to do with your thought life. Holiness in your thought life. A wise person who pursues wisdom with passion and persistence. How about this one? Vocational holiness. Yeah. Sometimes we think about vocation. That's the work that we do. You know, the paycheck that we receive. But it's more than just that. A vocation. A voca is a call. You have vocal cords. Vocay means to call. What is it that God has called you to? What is he calling out of you? And so in this case, vocational holiness means doing good work in your life. And that's not just what you do for a paycheck. It's all of it, to do good work in response to the call of Christ. Here's the third dimension, social holiness. Learning to love other people as you learn to be loved. And those are both hard. And the fourth one, emotional holiness. There ought to be something here that impacts us at a, at a gut level, a visceral level, an emotional level. And here's the word for it in the Bible. It's joy. It's joy, which isn't the same as happiness, though sometimes they go together. It's joy, to know the joy of the Lord, the joy that is like a deep wellspring of the blessed life. So that's the language of holiness that we're going to be using over the next six weeks. And it's an invitation to grow in each of those areas. And what it really does is moves the conversation along from what must I do to be saved to what happens after I'm saved? What does a saved person look like? If salvation is the first step on the journey, 
like the starting of a race, what does the next 26 miles look like before you cross the finish line of this marathon called life? The Apostle Paul loved that image. He used it often in his writings. In one of my favorite verses, Philippians 3.14, he uses the language of a race. He says, I press on towards the goal, a holy life. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the goal then, Christian life, is, is not just about a day of decision or a moment of decision. It's not just the labor and delivery suite. It's the nursery. It's the toddler room. It's elementary school. It's high school. It's higher education. It's the hospital, the courtroom, counselor's couch, and the hospice home. And that should come as just a way of expanding the vision of what we're about. The most common understanding of the word salvation, I think, in the evangelical church has to do with a decision to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that's absolutely right. I mean, it begins there. We emphasize the Savior part. Jesus saves us from something. But he also saves us for something. And that's the Lord part. What does it mean to live our lives in alignment with Jesus as Lord? Because here's my fear. My fear is that for, for many Christians, they assume that conversion means I'm good to go. Like, I made the decision, I prayed the prayer, I'm, I'm good to go. And, and I'll just hang on until, until I die, and then the good life is waiting for me. Heaven awaits. And the dominant motif there is that salvation is experienced when you believe a certain set of things, and you pray a simple prayer, And then you just kind of carry on the best through this sad life until Jesus returns. So the goal, if that's all we have, is just to get people saved. You get them saved and then they live with the assurance that when all of this misery called life is done, we all get to go to heaven. There it gets made better. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Discipleship is cradle to grave. Sanctification is the language we're going to use to describe the journey from that moment of decision to that moment you and I are face-to-face with Jesus in whose image our lives have been made. We're going to use the Bible as our primary guide. Because the Bible, you know, is essentially the story of God's activity. Isn't it? What happens in the Bible? God forms a people. And he gives them an identity. You will be the people who bear my name. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And he calls them out and says, I want you to be holy. Which is a way of saying, I want you to be like me. That's their truest identity. The identity of the people of God is the basis on which they are invited to reflect, to mirror what God is like in the world. We see the same theme The same theme emerging again in the New Testament. For those who are in Christ, members of the body, the church, the expectation is that they will be not just any old kind of community, they will be a holy community. One that is empowered and being transformed by the life of Jesus. So here's what... uh, Here's what Gordon Smith writes. He says that Jesus doesn't merely preach a gospel of personal salvation for those who are hoping for an afterlife in heaven. 
Rather, he teaches his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he urges them to seek the kingdom and righteousness. And his offer to them was a transformed life, an abundant life. And in describing that life, Jesus uses language that on the surface is going to make us really uncomfortable and fill us with hesitation because it's unattainable, we think. In the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks this way. Again, Matthew 5, verse 48. You've seen it before. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we see those words and we say, Impossible. Recipe for disaster and hypocrisy. We see the words and we think about flawless moral perfection. And the minute we miss the mark, we've missed the whole thing. And we recognize, we acknowledge the prevalence of sin and error in our lives, and we say it is utterly unattainable. And while perfection along those lines may never be achieved in this life, shouldn't we be moving that direction? I mean, if we believe everything we claim to believe, shouldn't our tomorrow be better than our yesterday? I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about character. The circumstances of the world have done this all the way through history, and they will continue to do that. But you, if Jesus is who we say he is, if the Spirit of God is the force and power of God's divine presence in our lives, should not tomorrow be better than yesterday? One of the key characteristics of all life, you remember this from biology, the criteria of life, is growth. Living things grow. And if you're not growing, you're probably dying. And we're not dying in Christ. We are growing in Christ. But there is another dimension to the language of perfection, and it's actually probably the one that is best rooted in Scripture. And it will help you. It certainly helped me understand the command of Jesus to be perfect, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. What does that mean? And again, I'm just going to read a little bit from from Gordon Smith here. He says, when an engine runs exquisitely, when a pen writes effortlessly, or when a bridge spans a river with a flawless combination of beauty and structural integrity, when a coat fits us, fits us comfortably in a style and color that is suited just for this day and its weather, we rightly use the words perfect. It's perfect. Something works. Something fits. Something is true to its intent. Smith goes on to say we can apply that same concept To human beings, when we meet a saint, we encounter beauty and integrity and congruence. The call to perfection is the invitation to be that for which we were created. Let me say that again. The call to perfection is the invitation to be that for which we were created. That's the thought that you sang in the song that Rochelle wrote for this series. That Zaid, to be holy, means that your Zaidness comes forward. That Kalen, it's your Kalenimity that the world needs. 
that Dan, it's your Danish. No, that's too sweet. Yeah. Aurora, we need your Aurora ability that, that, that who God made you to be absolutely comes to the forefront. That's perfection. It's the meaning behind this language of holiness. Let me just pepper you with a bunch of scriptures, sort of in rapid fire succession that maybe get us grounded in the concept. This is from Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 5, may God sanctify you entirely. This isn't a Sunday thing. 24-7. Holiness infects every part of our lives. In a similar way, he writes to the church in Rome, be transformed. Not just dabble in this, sprinkle a little bit of Jesus here. No, no, this is transformation. How? In this case, the renewing of your minds. Sapiential holiness. You're going to go home saying that, right? Sapiential holiness. Yeah. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Paul writes an entire letter to the church in Colossae, and it's all about a call to spiritual maturity. Here's what he says. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. That image of spiritual growth towards maturity. There's that sense of progress, of movement, of forward motion. Spiritual maturity doesn't always come quickly, but it needs to come consecutively. In the presence of Jesus, life doesn't just stagnate. It grows. I mean, surely that's what Peter must have had in mind in that that scripture that Ruth read for us in all of her Ruthiness this morning. To Peter invites readers to understand. He speaks about faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and more and concludes with love, but he takes all those things and he says, as much as you possess those things now, you need to possess them in increasing measure in the future because there's a growing in this. To Peter reminds us that this new birth is not the end point. It's the start point. And that what really is in in vision here is maturity. To put it more bluntly, Our conversion, our starting point, really has very little meaning if it doesn't lead to the greater conversion of the rest of our lives to maturity. If you haven't opened your Bibles already, um, I'm going to really ask you to do it now. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, Grab one from the person beside... No. Um, Maybe you have a device. And if you don't have an app on your device, very quickly search version. And get that, it's a multi-billion, uh, multi-million downloaded platform, free, it's beautiful. We're going to be in Colossians 1, this is the theme for the whole series, so you're going to want to know this one. Colossians 1, verse 28, Jesus is the one that we proclaim. Let's be clear about that. In a day and age when the church is shouting about a lot of things, This is the one thing we want to shout out loud. Jesus is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's the goal. 
That's the destination, fully mature in Christ. This is another place where translators sort of, they, they, they reached a sticking point. And the word there is perfect. They thought if we say perfect, everybody's going to tune that out and say that's impossible. So they use the words fully mature. Good words. I think those are great words, fully mature. But understand that underneath it is the word perfect. And the reason we recoil against it I think is not just that it feels unattainable, but we know how destructive perfectionism is in people's lives. We don't want to have that in our minds. The invitation to be perfect is not the same thing as a pull up your bootstraps, do it on your own, drive towards perfectionism. I have that in me, and I will tell you it produces nothing but anxiety and steals your peace. That's not what God wants. Perfectionism is a destructive habit. It's a habit of the self. Be perfect is an invitation to maturity in Christ. You are going to sign off all your emails this week. In Christ, Kevin. In Christ, Donna. In Christ. We're going to sign them that way. Even within the church, we're at risk of this. We're at risk when we read the commands that God gives, really the instructions for living, and we treat them like a hammer that we pound down on people. The very holiness of God is weaponized against people because perfectionism calls people to live under the principles that God offers, but disconnects them from their source. They make it all about the law and not about the lawgiver. Sanctification only ever happens in Christ. Not human effort, but participation with Christ. Legalism is a curse. It's just a weight. The law is good, it's beautiful, but only when it gets linked to Jesus. Otherwise, it's just this crushing burden, unachievable. Being holy is not an automatic thing. But it doesn't mean just trying harder. What we need always is grace. The holiness that the Bible talks about is energized by grace, begins with grace, is carried out through grace. Second Peter 3.14 echoes that theme. It says, in grace, you make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. Why? Because he's the one who gives those things, spotless, blameless before God. Christ is our righteousness. I was reading the remarks this week, 1983, a man named Myron Oxberger. He was the president of Eastern Mennonite Seminary. Don't ask me why I was reading that. YouTube is this huge hole into which you fall. And I was way down there. But uh, this is what he wrote. And I actually found it, you know, spot on, on point. He wrote in a commencement address, I believe in justice, but I am not a preacher of the gospel of justice. But I preach in Christ, who calls us to justice. I believe in love, but I'm not a preacher of the gospel of love, but in Christ, who calls us to love. I'm committed to peace, he says. But I'm not a preacher of peace, but in Christ, who calls us to peace. Let us beware, and this is the key point, of the ultimate plagiarism of borrowing some great concepts from Jesus and then running off and proclaiming these concepts and not sharing the Christ that empowers them. It is in 
Christ. The call to holiness comes from the Father as an invitation to participate in the life of Christ and do so in a posture of radical dependence. So again, Colossians 1.28, this is what we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus. He's the one. He's the only one we proclaim. We admonish and teach everyone with all the wisdom we can muster. Why? So that we can present everyone, say it, fully mature in Christ. Why do we do that? What's the goal? The whole reason the church exists, all the services, programs, classes, all the activity, one thing, to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everybody whole. Everybody living just as God designed them to be. Juan Carlos living out his Juan Carlosism. Karina being the Karina that Bob Dylan sang about in the 1960s. No, not that, but... So that the power of sin loses its grip on humanity. So that ordinary human beings don't think of themselves as spiritual giants. They're just plumbers or peasants or tax collectors, gang members, kindergarten, not that they're the same, kindergarten teachers. (laughs) Sorry about that, teachers. Everybody who wants to can finally put on truth and kindness and courage and faith and gentleness like they're putting on clothes. And that their hearts, the hearts of fathers, are are turned towards their kids. The hearts of kids are turned towards their moms. And that that hunger, that relentless hunger that's inside every human heart, that tends to throw their lives away in pursuit of money or work or pleasure or all kinds of other things, that heart finally finds its stillness and an identity in being the person that God has created you to be. And you may not be that fully yet, but tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. And God is leading you on a lifelong journey. What is it? To present everyone fully mature in Christ. What is the purpose of everything we do in the church? To present everyone fully mature in Christ. Our big audacious goal for the GTA, let's present everyone fully mature in Christ. Not just conversion, the whole thing. Fully mature in Christ. When somebody finds you later today and you said, I was at church, and say, well, what did you guys talk about? What are you going to tell them? To present everyone. Hey, you got it. With conviction, with energy, with passion. To present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is what Paul said before he offered those words. He said, for this reason... I will strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ gives me. Christ powerfully at work in me. What? To present everyone fully mature in Christ. So that's where we're headed, folks. The weeks ahead, this six-week journey, fully mature in Christ. The call to be saints. And the heart of it is the declaration that this is possible, but it is only possible when we are rooted in in Christ. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at that rooted relationship, what it means to be in Christ. We're going to talk about how a holy person is a wise person. A holy person does good work. A holy person lives a life that is consistent with how God loves us. A holy person is a joyful person. That's where we're headed. And I hope that you will stay with us. And if you have to be away from one Sunday to the next, that you can tune in on YouTube and catch up a little bit. But here's what I hope the most. That the conversation we start on Sunday mornings continues during the week. 
We have dozens of small groups that are meeting midweek, and they'll all be working along this same trajectory, the same theme. And if you're not connected with one of them, well, here's a few. This is just a representative sample of some that are meeting this week, and we will be delighted to welcome you. We have a, a midday one on Tuesdays. I have groups Tuesday night, Wednesday night. There's a really cool group on Thursday night. These are the parents of the youth group kids, so you know how cool they are, right? Right. Thursday nights here. Uh, if any of those would fit your calendar, if none of them do, in either case, just let us know. Or, you know, just surprise us. Just show up. Just show up. And, and if at any point in your conversation or your own time of reflection and prayer, you have an observation, a thought, or a question, we've created a little website address there or email address, questions at mcbc.org. We'd love to hear what you're thinking, and we'll fold those questions into the message the following week. To be clear, they're questions about the series, not, not who makes the best donuts. Or, yeah, okay. I think that's enough for today, uh, except to, to realize or acknowledge that where we go next matters. And so to go from the word of God to the table of Christ is something that you don't want to miss. And as we make that movement, let me pray for all of us. God, we have, we've heard you speaking today. Through the pages of Scripture and through those nudgings and promptings that we feel in our own minds. And God, we know that if, if we're going to make any progress in this area, it won't be through our own effort alone, but will be the work of Jesus within us. And so before we aspire to do anything, we want to assume that posture of worship and gratitude and dependence before Jesus, and what better place to do it than here? At the table that Jesus prepared for us, a sacred table, one sanctified, made holy by the presence of God among us. So join us here at this table, we pray, as we honor and remember and cling to the saving, sanctifying power of Jesus in our lives. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.